Hi, this is Greg Lois. Uh, welcome to the New Jersey Workers' Compensation webinar. Uh, today is April 24th, 2023, and today we are talking about litigation issues in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. I had one of those weekends when you're so excited to come back to work. I had a, in one day, I had a little league parade, then a funeral, and then a wedding. So it was a crazy weekend. Uh, the whole weekend I was looking forward to this presentation because we're talking about some of my favorite topics. And as if you know me, you know fraud is always one of my favorite topics. So let's dive in. Um, let's talk about where we are in the webinar series and where we're going. So this month is going to be some litigation issues. Next month we're going to talk about um, uh, temporary disability issues. And then we're going to talk about, in June, medical provider claims. Today my goal is to introduce you to fraud in New Jersey. Uh, talk a little bit about motions and how they advance your case, when to use them, when not to use them, and then, of course, defending reopeners. Uh, one of the biggest frustration, if, if you have New Jersey cases, you are frustrated by reopeners, and I'm going to talk about how we avoid them or head those off. Um, so our mission, as always, is to take control and stay in control of the New Jersey case. Our goal is to drive them to closure. I'm hoping you have a copy of my handbook. If not, you can go right to our website right now, loisllc.com forward slash publications, and you can download a copy of our 2023 handbook. Um, please also know that these webinars are also released as podcasts, uh, usually the same day as the webinar, um, thanks to our amazing marketing department. So you can subscribe to these podcasts. We do four a month, four webinars, four topics, loisllc.com forward slash podcast. And if you're looking for something next level, you're looking for you know, a more in-depth case law discussions and panel discussions between attorneys on different sides of issues, uh, check out my partner's podcast, Christian Cisan. His podcast is called Third Fridays. It's released every month on the third Friday of the month, and it is awesome for getting into those second level type questions. Um, all right, uh, today's topic, uh, we're going to be going through some interesting things here. Please ask me questions. It makes it so much more fun. I promise I won't embarrass you. I will only read, I will read your question out loud so everybody can see your question. I'll only say your first name, okay, and I'll then answer your question. So you'll know that I'm actually answering your question. I'm speaking to you. Um, these are all going to be recorded. And so ask the question, even if you think it's a silly question or maybe it's something you should know, please ask the question because there is somebody out there who's listening to this or wants to learn and, and maybe is listening to this on video or on a podcast and they didn't have the opportunity to ask that question live. So please bring your questions in. All right, let's dive into our first topic. And again, this is my favorite topic. Fraud is so underutilized. We've got such a great fraud statute in New Jersey and it is so underutilized. So let's talk about um, fraud in New Jersey first. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is the changes to the Workers' Compensation Act. It was only in 1998 uh, that the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act was amended to include a fraud provision. I guess before 1998, there was no fraud in the state of New Jersey. It was, you know, just absolutely always on the up and up. Uh, of course, I'm being um, funny there. No, there certainly was fraud. There just wasn't a way of prosecuting it. So my goal is to talk today about practically how do we apply this law uh, from 1998. It's so interesting um, because when you look at the case law that's developed over the years, there really aren't a ton of cases on fraud in New Jersey. So I'm going to talk about how we apply it. I'm going to ignore 
um, what I typically or I see more, more frequently prosecuted, which is employer fraud. That is premium fraud, misclassification, all those types of things. That's not the focus of today. I'm going to talk about this from the defense point of view, right, and how we apply uh, fraud to petitioners' claims. So here's the words of Section 57 of the statute. And if you're listening to this on a podcast, just imagine a slide full of legal gobbledygook. Now, the good news about Section 57 is very simple, right? It says that the person is guilty of a crime of committing fraud where they purposely or knowingly either make a false claim, a misleading statement, or they conceal their actual working ability for the purpose of wrongfully obtaining benefits. That's all you really need to know, okay? It's a very broad, very good fraud statute. Uh, other places in the statute, uh, purposely and knowingly, is um, uh, uh, defined, and this is in the criminal fraud statute. Purposely means they did it if they knew that the circumstances uh, that they are intending to create exist. So words like purposeful, designed, or with design have the same meaning as purposely and knowingly. And the criminal statute also says knowingly means uh, that they're doing something knowing that they're going to get the result they're searching for. So really putting this all together, our burden of proof is to show that the workers' compensation petitioner, A, acted purposely or knowing in giving or withholding information with the intent that he or she would receive some kind of benefit, and they knew that the statement or omission was material. Um, now that, again, statement or omission, lack of statement, has to be made for the purpose of obtaining some benefit to which they're not entitled. And that, again, could be money, or it could be medical treatment, okay? So where they're doing things that they're going to result in either additional care that's unnecessary or additional payments. To win, we need to show that they obtained that benefit or treatment or tried to obtain it and that they misled somebody or directly and affirmatively lied. Now, usually the way this comes forward is concealment, okay? Concealment is fraud. Uh, if the person has is hiding their actual ability to work, if the uh, claimant is, um, you know, misrepresenting their ability to work, if they're misrepresenting their activities of daily living, I mean, that's so common uh, where the claimant says, oh, all I can do is sit in bed and watch TV and I'm uh, writhing in pain and agony. But the truth is they're going about their activities of daily living. They're still driving a car. They're going to the store. They're doing their shopping. They're doing their own laundry and, and self-care. And clearly there is some work capacity there. In those circumstances, they're concealing their actual work ability. And in that circumstance, that is fraud, right? So we need to show some type of proof or demonstrate that there is that concealment going on. And a little bit later in this presentation, I'm going to talk a little bit more about surveillance or covert video. So let's look at some examples of this so that we can really start to put some um, fine points on it. Filing a false claim is fraud, okay? Uh, this is where the claimant has made a false or misleading submission or statement. What's the classic false claim? The, the classic false claim is literally just making up the circumstances of the injury or making up the accident. It never occurred or that it's not work-related, and they're pretending that it is work-related. I mean, that is one of the most classic examples uh, that, you know, you can find. Um, how about hiding facts from the treating physician, right? Concealment of any material fact, concealing, for example, that they had a prior injury to the same body part. That is fraud, and what we will do as defense counsel is raise fraud. 
Typically, I will raise that by motion, although sometimes I will raise it at the time of trial, at the time the pretrial memorandum is executed. A more common type of fraud is exaggerating the condition. Um, exaggerating condition, and this doesn't have to be just to the primary treating physician, could be to anybody, including our medical expert, is a concealment of a material fact. And again, the way we're going to respond to that is file a motion to suspend benefits. Um, if the case is ready for trial, we will try this case on that issue. Um, concealing or failing to reveal actual work activity. That is clearly fraud, particularly where they're receiving benefits. Um, that is, again, going to be, we're going to file a motion to suspend benefits, and we are going to seek a full trial on that issue. Malingering and exaggerating condition, I mean, the classic miraculous discovery when they're outside of the treating physician's view, um, the claimant, I mean, we've all seen these cases where the claimant comes walking out of the treating physician's office, takes their cane, takes their back brace off, throws it in the trunk of their car, and then goes, spends the rest of the day going out doing shopping and doing errands or driving the car long distance. I mean, all those things are obvious, uh, clear concealment frauds, and that's malingering. Uh, and I think there is more malingering and exaggeration of conditions in cases uh, than there is pure or per se fraud. Uh, there's so much secondary gain baked into our workers' compensation system where, hey, the more treatment you get, the more time out of work, the more money you get. And remember, in New Jersey, you don't get a credit uh, at the time of permanency for the amount of temporary residual disability that you've paid. So you paid them temp for 10 years and you go and you do a, a settlement, you're not getting any credit in the state. So there really is um, sort of a jurisdictional secondary gain function that we need to be mindful of, particularly in the um, uh, malingering context where they are seeking to demonstrate or stay out of work for a longer period of time. Uh, just trying to stretch that case out as long as they possibly can. Um, all right, let's talk about the tactical impacts of raising fraud because we're, we're raising fraud. Oftentimes, even when I have a great fraud case, I'm still very willing to settle the case because there's fraud is a tactic that we are going to raise because of the leverage it creates in the case. Raising fraud is powerful because the current benefits could be terminated on all benefits. Medical and lost time benefits should be terminated if the claimant is found to be a fraud. Also, the statute allows for the court to impose restitution, meaning pay us back. Now, I've rarely seen that, and I haven't even found a single reported decision in which that's been imposed in a workers' compensation case, but it is possible. However, raising the demand for restitution is going to give you an increased impact in terms of leveraging your case towards settlement. When we raise fraud and trial is necessary, the trial strategy needs to be considered. You're going to have a very specific trial strategy based on the order of proofs. Remember, you don't have to reveal your fraud proofs until after the petitioner testifies. So until the, the petitioner and any lay witnesses they have complete their testimony, we don't turn over anything. And whether that's a video, it's a report, it's a document, it's a social media post, it's something in the newspaper, we don't have to turn that over until after the petitioner testifies. You can also, if you... Um, take the petitioner's testimony and you're not even aware of the fraud and then learn of it later, you can then raise concealment or malingering uh, or per se fraud in rebuttal at, at the trial. Um, now, 
generally speaking, you're hoping for a dismissal with prejudice. Um, you can file a motion to dismiss, which will result in the judge of compensation hearing trial proofs and then making a determination. Just remember that when you file a dismissal with prejudice motion saying, hey, judge, this person's a fraud, you might be giving away the surprise value that of the, the and particularly the tactical surprise value uh, that you might be raising a trial uh, without giving any forewarning to the adversary, meaning they're not going to have any opportunity to sort of prepare, right? So that's just something to be mindful of, and it's a, a real tactical consideration that needs to be done on a case-by-case -case basis so that the defense is really tailored to what you have in the case. Now, I've got some best practices on fraud that I want to share with you that I think are the gold standard on the way uh, a fraud case should be brought and a way a fraud case should be prosecuted. First, remember that the court rules require disclosure of any fraud uh, evidence on the pretrial memorandum. Now, people say, wait, there's rules that apply to workers' compensation cases? I go, yeah. And so the rules of court, I'm like, nope. It's in the New Jersey Administrative Code. It's um, Chapter 12, Subsection 235, Subsection 3.9a which says that a pretrial memorandum has to be executed in all cases before trial begins. Now, if you're playing along at home, claims professional, um, risk manager, remember that every case that gets tried in New Jersey, there should be a pretrial memorandum filed beforehand, okay? And we look at those pretrial memorandums as really important milestone documents in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. Because if you're not reserving uh, defenses on that pretrial memorandum, you might be waiving them at the time of trial, okay? So according to the court rules, uh, you have to identify any video or electronic media, including surveillance tapes, uh, that will be presented at trial. And you have to put it in the other witness section of the pretrial memorandum. Now you can include those uh, pretrial memorandum, or sorry, amend those pretrial memorandums to include any um, new information you obtained, but just be mindful that if you do that, again, you're now going to be signaling your adversary that you have that information, and you're also going to be uh, maybe challenged on your ability to amend the pretrial memorandum. Now, I think you should preserve the right to raise fraud on every case that you try. So every time I prepare a case for trial and I execute a green sheet, I always add the following sentence, quote, the respondent reserves the right to provide testimony or documentary evidence to refute the claims of the petitioner and or establish commission of fraud as defined by the statute and specifically reserve the right to obtain and or produce such evidence after the petitioner testifies as for the case of Gross versus Neptune, close quote. In other words, in every single pretrial memorandum I file, regardless of whether I actually have trial proofs or fraud proofs or not, I always add that in there. And the reason I do that is to protect my client. What I'm trying to do is make sure that if I later discover evidence of fraud, I am not going to be foreclosed or limited by the court in producing that information because I failed to put it on the green sheet. Also, there is a case called Gross's vs. Neptune, which stands for the proposition that fraud that is detected after the uh, trial begins might be excluded if the affirmative basis or the affirmative argument was not raised in the pretrial memorandum. And so I'm very careful about executing pretrial memorandums and making sure these sentences are added so I fully protect my client. 
Also on every single green sheet, I add additional blank employer witnesses. And I don't name the witnesses. I just say any other witness I need. Uh, so that if I do later develop fraud testimony, I have the opportunity to bring it into trial. So this is just classic. I know you're probably saying, Greg, this sounds like really belt and suspenders overdoing it, but the one in a hundred times that this saves your butt, it's going to be definitely worth it to do. Okay. That's my opinion. Um, okay. So what happens when the claimant is the fraudulent behavior comes out and they commit fraud during the trial? It happens frequently, right? The claimant lies. They get on the stand and they tell a story. When you believe that's occurring, you can reserve the opportunity to present rebuttal witnesses, and then you can raise fraud even after they finish testifying. Um, now, that, uh, there is no court rule or statute or case that I can point you to other than the United States Constitution, which guarantees you the right to due process, as does the New Jersey uh, uh, Constitution as well. So I'll make the argument, Judge, hey, he, he just lied. I'm going to present uh, fraud testimony to, to refute his testimony or contradict the claimant's testimony. The judge says, no, I'm not allowing that. It was not noticed on the pretrial memorandum, or I'm not allowing that. Um, the, the claimant can uh, finish their testimony, so I'm not allowing any more lay witnesses. I'm going to say, but judge, under the Constitution, under the due process clause, my client will be denied due process if we do not have the opportunity to cross-examine this witness and present rebuttal witnesses, and you should generally prevail on that. Okay, so the, the court... Uh, will generally allow that to happen. They may again uh, allow the petitioner another bite at the apple, which means let them come back into court and testify and try to explain away the new information that we're going to develop. But this is something for us to be very, very mindful of during the trial. I'm always on alert for the potential of the claimant to perjure themselves or to testify falsely during the trial. Now, judges in New Jersey, and everyone knows this is a very judge-driven um, uh jurisdiction. The judge has discretion uh, in the workers' compensation case to find that um, fraud does not arise to the level at which benefits must be denied. Okay, Denial of benefits is not mandatory, even where the claimant is found to have violated the fraud statute. And so the judge does have some discretion here and some latitude. It also means <clears throat> It also means that where the judge um, finds the claimant has not committed fraud, you're going to have a really tough time on appeal. Because remember, the appellate division um, threshold uh, uh, for determining an appeal in New Jersey is whether or not the judge's opinion could be supported by objective, credible proofs in the record. And because the judge is the trier of fact, where the judge says, yes, he did testify falsely, but I still think that their disability arises to this level, and you know they'll make some determination, that's going to be very difficult for us to prevail on an appeal. So you really want to win a fraud case at the trial level, not the appeal level. So the way we're going to help employers reduce their exposure is, A, hey, let's recommend investigation when we think malingering is apparent. Um, we're going to try to give you an idea of what to look for, and particularly we're going to uh, generally direct you to the medicals and say, here's where we think this person um, is exaggerating and malingering. Um, because we control medical, it's a great opportunity. You know, we're scheduling. You, you have the opportunity to schedule every medical appointment, uh, and not just IMEs, right? Any medical appointment, any diagnostic test, uh, any second opinion meeting. And because you can do that, you've got a great opportunity to know where the claimant's going to be at any one time, which means you have a great opportunity to direct surveillance. I think that ISO reports 
uh, in this jurisdiction are an absolute must. Now, the New Jersey Workers' Compensation docketing system, it's called Courts Online, does allow or does have a search function which will show you prior claims filed by the same claimant. But unfortunately, it's using Social Security matching. And the system no longer requires Social Security numbers, so it's not the best at finding priors. It's really not the gold standard. The gold standard, in my opinion, is going to be that insurance services organization CIB report, Claims Index Bureau um, prior report. That's what we really want to see. That's going to really give us the best information. Do not rely solely on the workers' compensation docketing system. Um, Remember your advocacy too, which is, you know, you could raise fraud and um, be unsuccessful in proving fraud on the part of the claimant. That's not re judicata or collateral estoppel on your opportunity to raise fraud again later in the case. You could keep raising it uh, as the case develops. So our goal is to make sure our clients don't get taken advantage of. And fraud is one of those uh, issues that you can raise over and over again. And if you don't win on fraud, you can raise it again later. So. Uh, one of the things I tell attorneys is do not wait for the perfect fraud case or try to create the perfect fraud case. You know, that circumstance where the attorney's like, well, I got some good video and it was pretty persuasive. You know, I have the person doing jumping jacks and walking their dog. And now we want to get five more days of video and we're really going to get them again. I'm like, you know what? I would go with what you have. Uh, I know you want to have that perfect case that nails everybody to the wall, but is that really useful? I would say go with what you have. Go early. Uh, rather than waiting for the perfect entrapment or the perfect case. Remember, if you bring fraud and the judge says, no, um, I see, I saw your proof, so we heard the petitioner's testimony, I don't think this amounts to a fraud, and then later you discover more stuff, you can always raise fraud again. So there really is no downside to doing that. I think of fraud as primarily a tactical uh, argument or defense, and if you win, it's strategic, right, because now you've closed out the entire case. All right. Let's move into our next topic for today, which is motions. Um, you know, motions and proceeding by motion is one of the most common ways we get control of a litigated case. So what does a motion consist of? It consists of a notice of motion, which is just a fancy piece of paper that says, hello, adversary, here's what I'm trying to do. It needs to be supported by an affidavit or a certification. This is usually just signed by the attorney. It really should only be 10 sentences that says, Here's why I brought the motion. Here's the proofs. And every single motion in New Jersey needs to be um, accompanied by a proposed order that the judge can just sign. And the judge is supposed to get three copies. Now, it's silly because all motions are now um, required to be submitted electronically, so three copies doesn't really make a lot of sense. But that's what the rule says, and that's what we do. Now, some motions, some motions require a brief because the reasoning for the motion requires some kind of legal discussion. We've got to educate the judge or explain persuasively why the judge should rule in our favor. In my opinion, a perfect motion is super clear, it's written in plain English, it's persuasive, and includes everything the judge would need to know in order to rule. You don't want to file a motion that's incomplete or that um, asserts facts not in the record or facts that you don't have documentary proofs for because all you're doing is giving the other side a built-in argument and a reason as to why that motion should not be listed for a hearing because that's what our adversary wants to do. They don't want to have to defend motions. 
The judge, the court, uh, through the court clerk, has to screen every single motion, make sure it meets minimum jurisdictional standards. If it is valid and meets the minimum standards, they must list it for a hearing. The court rules also say that if the motion is unopposed, the court must, not may, must uh, grant the motion. So what does unopposed mean? It means that they have not um, submitted contested or rep responsive papers within 14 days of the motion being served. Okay, so think about that. You file a motion maybe to compel the petitioner to provide you with uh, executed medical release. You file a motion arguing that the case um, does not meet the standards or burden under the statute of limitations. Your adversary must respond in 14 days or the judge must grant your motion, right? So these are really great opportunities to grab some traction in your cases. Now you can also get a case completely dismissed based on a motion practice. The most common way to do this is for a lack of prosecution. Unfortunately, the statute, section 54, says that every case in which we're asking for a straight dismissal must be listed for a hearing, which also means that's gonna introduce a lot of time and delay because you know the court system in New Jersey moves extremely slowly. From the time a motion is filed to the time a motion is um, actually heard could be months and months and months. And in that meantime, your adversary might wake up and actually file some opposition to the motion. Regardless, it is still useful to file these motions to get some traction to get your case moving. Now you can use motions to compel discovery, to demand discovery, to limit the proofs at trial, which I rarely see it done, I just did it a few weeks ago, or to get a claim completely dismissed. Almost every motion is purely tactical, meaning you're looking for some positional advantage, you're trying to gain some leverage over the other side, with the exception of a motion to dismiss, which is a strategic motion. If you file a motion to dismiss and you prevail, that's great news because you just have the entire case thrown out of court. So do we use motions to move cases? Yes. Uh, does the court generally grant motions? No. Uh, I've got some clients who say, Greg, it feels like a waste of time to do this because the judges are so reluctant to actually sign a motion. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And again, where the opposing party does not file any responsive papers within 14 days, you should be moving for that automatic win. All right, let's move on to our last topic, which is how we stop reopeners in New Jersey. First of all, what is a reopener and what are the strategies to avoid them? I can't uh, kill them, I can't stop them, but I can help you try to avoid receiving reopeners. So unfortunately, the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Law, Section 27, says that any agreement for compensation may be modified at any time by a subsequent agreement. What does that mean? It means any of your settlements that have been approved by a judge of compensation and any judgment or ruling that a judge has made is subject to being reopened. The only kind of settlements that are not gonna be subject to a reopener are section 20 lump sum dismissals. Those are not considered settlements, they're considered dismissals, and for that reason they're not reopenable. The only limitation on reopening a case is that the claimant must file the reopener application, which is just a single piece of paper, within two years from the date they last receive any payment. These are brought by way of formal application. The petitioner only has to allege, literally just allege, their condition has materially worsened. That's all I have to say. 
The burden on proof is on the petitioner to show that their condition has materially worsened. And in unlike um, most other workers' compensation cases in New Jersey, we actually have the right to serve interrogatories on the petitioner. What are interrogatories? They're just simply a list of questions that the petitioner has to answer under oath. So what, how, are open, how are these reopeners typically resolved? I'm going to tell you right now, the vast majority of them, over 90% of them, are absolutely baseless. The petitioner has no objective proofs that their condition has materially worsened. And so the argument really is from our side, nothing's changed, judge. We shouldn't be required to pay additional compensation. And the petitioner simply says, oh, actually something has changed. My condition has worsened. My, my back pain feels worse now. That's all I have to say. Um, in many cases, I see both sides get new expert reports. Of course, the petitioner's expert is going to say that the petitioner's condition has worsened. And of course, our adversary is going to say, no, nah, no, nah, no, it hasn't. In some cases, probably 10% of the time, the petitioner will seek some additional medical care. And you have to really be on the guard against this. Uh, the petitioner's attorney will say, hey, could you send them back to the treating physician one time only? He says his back pain is worse now, and he just wants to go back. If you send them back to that treating physician, A, not only have you reset the timeline for them to file a reopener application, but B, I guarantee you they're going to file a reopener and say, and look, now I have the medical evidence, which you just provided for me, thank you very much, uh, and now you must provide me with additional compensation, meaning dollars. You don't have to simply accept reopeners. You can try these just like any other kind of case. But in my experience, more than 90% of reopener claims resolve by way of lump sum Section 20 dismissal. And this is really frustrating for most of our clients and everyone's clients. This is not just me, it's everybody. The clients say, wait a second, Greg, how come every time I settle a case in New Jersey, a year or less later, the claimant files a reopener and then I have to pay them again, this time a Section 20 lump sum dismissal? And the answer is, unfortunately, that's just one way that this jurisdiction takes advantage of employers. There really is no good reason to justify uh, this besides patent paternalism. Patent paternalism. That's it. So um, that's the way they typically resolve is by way of Section 20. Now, how do you avoid these things? I'm going to give you some tactics. First tactic, when you are settling the original case, that is going to be later the subject of reopener. Remember that both sides typically are going to get medical experts to testify on their behalf or at least create reports. In my opinion, the petitioner's medical experts are always over the top. They throw in the kitchen sink. They exaggerate the petitioner's complaints. And so what I do when it's time to settle a case in New Jersey, the petitioner has to always testify in furtherance and acceptance of their settlement. I cross-examine the petitioner with their own expert's report, which again is going to contain over-the-top, ridiculous, out-of-band complaints. You know, I can, I can barely walk a mile. I can't walk up and down stairs. I can barely sit for even more than 10 minutes. You know, get them to repeat all of that on the record. Because when they've stated all those things in the furtherance of their original settlement, it's really hard for the petitioner to argue when they bring a reopener claim that their condition is worsened because they've already exaggerated it to such an extent that it's so hard for them to establish that their condition has worsened. So what I want to do is put them on the stand and elicit their own testimony to confirm the things they told their medical expert. 
And then if they bring a reopener and we decide to try the case and challenge it, I will use their own transcript against them at the future proceeding. I'll say, here's what you said to us a year ago when you testified. You said you could barely walk, you could barely sit, you couldn't sleep, you couldn't breathe. You know, you just, just go through the list of all their crazy complaints and say, you're telling me you're worse now and, and make them prove it. Very difficult for them to do. The second tactic is to litigate these cases. I don't think they're litigated enough. Um, I think just the fact that all they went and got is a second medical expert to give them a higher percentage of disability is not enough. What is that expert's opinion based on? You can challenge it. You can bring in your own expert. So don't forget that you have the opportunity to litigate these cases if you want to. This is a jurisdiction where employers and carriers are routinely taken advantage of by the system and uh, attorneys routinely come back and tell their clients, you're better off settling, you shouldn't try this case. Well, these might be cases that are worth trying uh, because you know, depending on how large the increase is that's being demanded, depending on what the testimony you obtained in the underlying case, they might be very defensible. So utilize the petitioner's burden, which is the burden is on the petitioner to demonstrate a material worsening, develop true uh, proofs at trial, and win. Another tactic is to try to pay the reopener up front. So instead of resolving the case by way of order approving settlement or by way of uh, trial, make an offer to settle the first case, which includes the value of any potential reopener and is done via section 20. Now, this is always my position. I want to resolve everything by way of section 20, but there is a judicial bias in this jurisdiction against doing a section 20, quote, the first time, close quote. Again, this is a jurisdiction in which the reopener is considered par for the course, so the reopener claim is expected. And so many judges will say, I'm not going to do approve a section 20 in this case um, because I want them to have their reopener rights should their condition worsen. And that will be despite all the uh, parties in the case, including counsel, arguing that they actually want to do a section 20. I mean, think of how ridiculous that is. Uh, in this jurisdiction, have the petitioner come forward and say, Judge, I want to accept a Section 20. And have opposing counsel come forward and say, Judge, I represent this petitioner, and we want to do a Section 20. And the defense comes forward, and the employer comes forward and says, Hey, we want to do a Section 20. We all have agreed this case has a value of $100,000 under Section 20. We want to do a settlement for that amount. And the judge saying, Nope, I don't approve those. I want to make sure this person can bring a reopener claim. Right? That's a ridiculous position for the court, which is, should not have a stake in the outcomes of these cases, uh, to make that have that opinion and to blow up a settlement, but it absolutely happens. Okay? Um, so be mindful of, some judges will allow it to happen though. Some judges, you could say, judge, uh, this case has a value of $50,000 under an order approving settlement, but we know there's probably gonna be a reopener, so we're gonna offer them $70,000 in a section 20 lump sum dismissal at this time. All parties are in agreement that this is fair and just, and we ask your honor to approve this, and some judges will. So it's really gonna be judge dependent um, on whether or not they can. All right, so our takeaways from today. First, I don't think fraud is raised enough in New Jersey. We have a great statute, a strong statute, and we should be not afraid to use it. Counsel should be looking for opportunity to file motions to gain traction, to gain litigation leverage in cases, to help us maneuver cases to settlement. And finally, reopeners can be stopped or challenged with careful preparation. 
All right, let's move into our question and answers. If you haven't asked your question yet, please do so now. I'm gonna do my best to answer as many questions as I can at this time. So let's come over here and grab a look at the questions. Okay, good, got a couple in here already, thank you. Um, okay, so Jim asked an interesting question. If someone is found to be at permanent total disability, is there any way to challenge if we find them working? Basically what I'm asking for is a reverse reopener. Jim, great question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that it, it, the case is subject to reopener by any party, any party. So the claimant is found to be permanently and totally disabled. You've discovered them doing activity or work activity, which is really not congruent to uh, how the case was originally resolved. You absolutely have the right to reopen that. I will caution you though, there is a Supreme Court decision in New Jersey, and I can't remember off the top of my head the pinpoint site, which says that permanent total disability in New Jersey under the workers' compensation statute is not inconsistent with the ability to do some work. And so in cases where the person has been found to be permanently and totally disabled, but they worked a part-time job for three hours a week, you know, reading books at the local library or something, that has not been found to be significant enough work to be a per se fraud, which would get that case reopened and, and maybe um, the amount of disability uh, diminished or changed. So just be thoughtful. Uh, where you have evidence where the person, you're currently paying them perm total and you find out that they're working a similar job or they're working a job that clearly exceeds the restrictions um, that were laid out in the workers' compensation case and you think that's a fraud or you think that's a change in circumstance and a material change, um, then you should absolutely be thinking about reopening that permanent total disability finding. Okay, uh, Miriam asked a question. Greg, for a case open several years, oh, so an oldie and, uh, and a goodie. Uh, for a case that's open several years, does it matter how old the surveillance or electronic records are in order to attempt to prove fraud? What about employers who use several investigators, attorney firms for their defense? Does this impact uh, the case from the perspective of judicial discretion of the judge and how it is viewed as far as shopping around? On a side note, not to mention the expense. All right, so that's an interesting sort of question. Um, you got an old case, it's been open several years, you've got some records and surveillance. It sounds like you've been through a couple of different firms maybe trying to defend this case. Uh, but my question to you, Miriam, is going to be, did anybody bring that fraud case forward? I can tell you that when you bring a fraud case in New Jersey, everybody is on edge, right? Like it is, it's really one of those things where you really have to push it in this jurisdiction. Fraud, in my opinion, I'm going to say it over and over, it's not raised enough. It's not raised early enough. And sometimes I've seen um, where attorneys are waiting for this perfect fraud where you give them a video and you're like, hey, it's pretty good. Look what it shows. And the attorney is like hesitant to bring forward fraud and hesitant to do the work and hesitant to try that case. And unfortunately, then it gets stale. And it sounds like in your case, like maybe life's gone on. And now you want to go back and like say, hey, we had all this stuff. Why don't we do anything with it? That is a frustration, right? And so that's why I would tell you in defending workers' compensation cases in New Jersey, if you're just doing the normal job of get along, go along, I am telling you your clients are not going to be well served because the system will take advantage of them, okay? Uh, there are opposing parties in the system on purpose. That's to keep everything honest. 
And so it sounds like um, defense counsel maybe didn't do what they should have done earlier, and now you're trying to put the toothpaste back in the toothpaste tube. It's a lot harder. The longer in history or farther back that surveillance video is or that information you have is, the less weight the judge is going to put on it. And they're going to say, well, that's two years old. You know, Here's how they are now. They've worsened. And it's going to be really hard to utilize it. So I think that would be a case-by-case -case kind of piece of advice as to how you uh, would reintroduce that old evidence that maybe hadn't been introduced earlier. Okay. Um, last question I have is, Greg, uh, what if... Uh, okay, here's some more coming in. Okay, uh, one more question. If I can be proven that an expert witness is not qualified, can that impact the case? Yeah, absolutely, right? So um, I like to do that. I try to disqualify my adversaries, medical experts. How do I disqualify them? Well, you disqualify their exam. You disqualify their opinion. You disqualify their credibility. You go through um, their training. The, are they fellowship trained? Are they board certified? Have they ever been suspended? Has their license ever been revoked? Have their licensure ever been challenged? How many malpractice cases do they have against them? Um, I was just taking the testimony of Dr. Carrie Skolnick, who's utilized by lots of petitioners' attorneys throughout the state. And if you discover, look into him, you'll discover that he's in a, a member of the Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, uh, 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 ACOES, something like that. And when you look into that, you realize that they've censured him in that group uh, for um, uh, 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 testimony in his cases, uh, it, it, a poorly informed testimony, not reviewing the medical records and testifying in cases. He was censored for that, right? So when I cross-examine that doctor, I absolutely bring that up in front of the judge. And I asked the doctor about his being censured and being censured for not reviewing medical records. And he's out there giving opinions and testifying as an expert. So you've got to go after them. You have to go after them directly with what you have. The other thing that you should go after them uh, in order to disqualify particular petitioners experts is their income sources. When you discover that their, their entire medical practice is 99% medical testimony, and then you discover that 99% of their income is for testifying for plaintiffs, you should be introducing that as evidence of bias, that they only testify for one side, they only testify in accordance um, for money, this is their only source of income, they have no treating um, patients, uh, they have no admitting privileges anywhere, they haven't treated a patient in a long period of time, you should judge, this is just a paid expert, they're not an independent expert, they're not impartial, they're just a paid expert, uh, they're, they should be given no weight. I mean, that's the argument that we should be making in our case. So we should absolutely be going after uh, their medical witnesses. Okay, Laura asked me a question. In a case where a petitioner has filed for permanent total disability and to bring in the second injury fund and petitioner is found to be a student, do benefits have to be granted to file for fraud as there are no benefits currently being paid out? No. So if you find that they're doing activity which is inconsistent with what they've told your doctors or what they've testified to, the fact that they haven't actually won the benefit yet doesn't matter. It's that they're trying to win it, right? That's the uh, attempt to obtain benefits. Um, misleading or fraudulently portraying their p condition or their or their status, um, that is the crime, right, that they've committed. So uh, the fact that you haven't actually paid them yet doesn't matter, but they are trying to get money from you, and so for that reason, you have fraud. So thank you, Laura, and thank you for asking a question that kind of brings it home for us. Um, that's the last question I had, so thanks everybody who asked them. Uh, thanks for participating today. Uh, this was a great afternoon, and I had, what a fun topic. I'll see you next month uh, when we start talking about um, indemnity issues in New Jersey. Have a great rest of the day, everybody, and a great rest of the week.
See you next time.